Hi, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to episode 13 of Digging Deeper. This is a weekly podcast that takes a deep dive into a theme or subject and explores what the Bible has to say about it. There are several wrong ways to read and understand the Bible. In this episode, I'll explore some of these and more importantly, investigate the best ways to comprehend this amazing book. I'll use what the Bible has to say about slavery to illustrate my point. I hope you enjoyed this discussion on understanding the Bible. Uh, this is the first question that I've got here, and this is, this is kind of further to some of the things that we were looking at last week. And uh, so some more specifics, I guess, on the whole deconstruction, reconstruction, and our, our understanding of the Bible. The question goes like this. If the Bible is truly the inspired word of God and was intended as a roadmap for us to live by, why is it so difficult to understand? Everyone appears to have an opinion on what it means. But if it is indeed an instruction manual by which we learn of the nature of God, his plan for us and how to live our lives, wouldn't God have intended uh, it to be easy to understand? Are we overcomplicating it by not taking it literally and simply believing that God can do anything? Great question. All right. Let me start by saying that there are a number of what I will refer to are as wrong ways to read the Bible or maybe wrong ways to view the Bible. And so here, here are the five, I'd say my top five, wrong ways to read or view the Bible. Number one, reading the Bible out of obligation. So that's kind of, well, you know, God says to read the Bible, so I better do it, even though I don't want to. And, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. God wants someone who's prompt, whose heart is in it, whose passion level's there. And we don't read the Bible to make God happy. <laughs> we read the Bible to learn more about him. And uh, that's, that's our, that should be our motivation, all right? Um, the second wrong way is to read it as an instruction manual, uh, I've heard people say that the word or the the word Bible B I B L E stands for basic instructions before leaving Earth. Now that's very clever, but I think it's inaccurate. I think the Bible is a it has instructions, but the Bible is a whole lot more than an instruction manual. The third not great way to read the Bible is God's answer book. Uh, the Bible has lots of wisdom, but it doesn't answer every situation of life. And I think it's important that we understand that. We mustn't make the Bible do what it was never meant to do. The fourth thing, and we've all seen people do this, maybe you and I have been guilty of this at times as well, but viewing the Bible as something we need to learn so that we can win the argument. We all know people like that. Um, we know that person who is always right about the Bible and more than willing to tell you why they're right about it. 
And they will often use the words, well, the Bible clearly says. And you know, the Bible is clear about some things and some things it's not clear about because if it was clear about them, we wouldn't have three views, four views or five views about it. And Christians wouldn't have been discussing it, sadly, arguing about it for hundreds of years. The fifth and final way not to read the Bible is the daily horoscope. And I think, you know, young Christians particularly, maybe you get into that, you kind of get your Bible, you you randomly open it up and you close your eyes and you and you and you put your finger down at a verse and um and, and then you read it like, you know, this is this is God's word for you, which is really cool because this says, I have loved you, says the Lord, which is really good. Although it's in past tense. So maybe it's not really good. Who knows? Don't read the Bible like that, basically. So what the Bible is, is the Bible is a written record of God interacting with people. The Bible, I believe, is completely true. And and it expresses that truth in lots of different ways. And I think this is one of the most important things that we should ask ourselves when we're reading the Bible is what sort of language am I reading now? This is some of the things, some of the different types of language you will find when you're reading the Bible. You will find poetry, history, promises, commands, stories, songs, rhetoric, logic, proverbs, history. I've said that twice. Hyperbole, wisdom, irony, parables, figures of speech, apocalyptic and metaphorical language. So when you're reading the Bible, when you're studying scripture, ask yourself, how should this be understood? Is what I'm reading literal? So when Jesus said, love your enemies, he literally meant that. When he said, treat others as you would be treated or you would have them treat you, he meant that literally. When he said, love one another, he meant that literally. But then we read statements in some of the poetic books, for example. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the book of Job, and, and you read statements there that use poetic license. Well, we know from our poems of through history, our poems of today, our songs of today, they all use language that if you were to say it to somebody, they would look at you and go, huh? But if you sing it, then it seems okay. You know, I will love you for a thousand years. Well, actually, no, you won't because you're not going to live that long, but I get the sentiment. And so when we're reading Proverbs or when we're reading any of the poetic books, the Psalms, poetic license is in there. And so we need to understand that that's not literal. So Psalm 139, for example, it talks about God uh, knitting babies under the, under the world in, in caves. We know that God does not knit babies in caves. What's it saying, though? It, it's saying that that uh, God, is, he knows you intimately. Um, he, he knows everything about you. Nothing is a surprise to him. He knows us, the good, the bad, the indifferent, and he loves us implicitly. And so there's wonderful truth there. So when we're reading the Bible, we've got to understand what are we reading and then what sort of truth is it, is it expressing? So is it truth as fact? Is it, is it literal statements that are taken as fact? Or is it truth as meaning, like metaphor, poetic license, all of that, which, which is not to be taken literally, but there's, there's this beautiful, rich truth 
that comes shining through. But the most important thing is that truth becomes life to us. So for me, it's not just about learning the Bible and knowing the answers. I, I want to I want to read this book. I want to study this book. I want to find its truth. But then I need to ask myself the question, how does this apply to my life right now? How will my life reflect more the nature of Jesus, the nature of God, uh, more now than it did previously because of what I have just learned? And so the, we need to incarnate the word. We need to flesh the word out just like Jesus did. So Jesus, the Bible says, is the word made flesh. So if you want to know what the Bible means and what the Bible's truth is, you need to look at the person of Jesus, not just not just the pages of a book, but the person of Jesus, because he's the word, he's the Bible made flesh. He's fleshing it out. He's living it out for us. If you want to watch a uh, a message on that. I taught into this uh, a few years ago, uh, a, a message called, Is the Bible Really True? And you'll find it on YouTube. And so that will be really, really helpful to you. Now, I think, you know, God's given us a book uh, full of poetry and metaphor and um, laws and true statements and literal statements and all and everything in between. He could have done it differently. Uh, but he didn't, and and I'm not going to question God uh, on that. He chose to give us a book um, that is sometimes not easy to understand. He could have given us an A4 sheet with one side, things to do, one to ten, and then on the second side, things not to do, one to ten. And he could say, okay, do the stuff on side one, don't do the stuff on side two, and you'll be okay. But he didn't do that. And so we've got a book. He chose to reveal himself to people through people. And so what we see in Scripture is an unfolding of God's nature as people understood God more and more. And so the Bible, of course, is thousands of years old. The, the most modern document in Scripture is 2,000 years old. And then parts of the Tanakh go back 3,000, 4,000. And, I mean, there are quotations in the Tanakh from um, from. Uh, Egypt and and other civilizations that that predate the rest of the Old Testament or Tanakh writings, and so uh, it's very important for us to understand that. So what we find in the pictures of Scripture is that God always met people where they were at. Um, as I say, the Bible was thousands of years old, and it was written at a time that was vastly different to our time today. So if you go back to some of the earlier parts. Um, of uh, of the scriptures, it, it's it's dealing with primitive warrior tribes. And so if you're a member of a primitive warrior tribe, what is your God going to be like? Well, God's going to be a warrior, right? Even though he isn't. But God submitted himself to their picture of him because what we find in scripture is God always meeting people where they were at. I think we should be greatly comforted by that. I love the fact that God met me exactly where I was at when I was 19. And then, of course, I, I walked away from him for a couple of years, and then he met me exactly where I was at when I was 21. And I find that through my 40-plus years as, as, a, as a follower of Jesus, God constantly meets me where I'm at, but doesn't want me to stay there, you know, constantly that metamorphosis process is happening. I'm sure you've got 
testimony that God always meets you where you're at as well. So for these prim primitive warrior tribes, God became a warrior for them so that, but he didn't leave them there. He, he moved them along. We see the wonderful story of Abraham. And uh, Abraham was called out of a primitive paganistic culture. And God starts to reveal himself to Abraham. And, and, uh, and, and, and it's just wonderful. But we, we read this wonderful story uh, in the book of Genesis of Abraham and God. And God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac. Now, we read that from a 2021 perspective and we go, what? <laughs> Kill your kid? you got to be joking. I mean, if I heard a voice that said, uh, Rob, this is, this is God here. Kill Gigi. Um, no. Why? Because God would not be meeting me where I'm at or where society is at in 2021. But 3,000, three and a half thousand years ago when Abraham was on the planet, he was brought out of a society where you pleased a deity by sacrificing a child. So Abraham never questions it. He goes, okay. I mean, he probably thought, oh, bummer. We, we were waiting for Isaac. We thought he was a seed of promise, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But he, don't, he never questions. So, and, and Isaac doesn't question either. And so they go that three-day trip. They go to a mountain that some people think is actually the same mountain as uh, Calvary, where Jesus was sacrificed. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. Um, and and they, he binds Isaac. And he's about ready to plunge in the dagger. And then the voice of God comes for it. Ah, don't kill your son. There's an animal. What's God doing here? He's shifting Abraham. He's, he's getting into the warrior tribe mentality. The pagan guy who thinks, I have to please this God by sacrificing my child. And God nudges them forward. And he says, hey, how about we kill an animal instead? So, and then we, we find as we read through the Hebrew scriptures um, that God's really not interested in animal blood either. And, and so God is constantly nudging people. We get to Jesus, who then is called the Lamb of God, who becomes the final sacrifice. And so on the cross, Jesus does away with blood sacrifices once and for all. God actually never wanted blood sacrifice, but he had to meet primitive people where they were at and nudge them forward. And so we go from sacrificing kids to sacrificing animals, the sacrifice of Jesus through his death and resurrection. He does away with sin, with Satan, with death, and with blood sacrifice forever. Aren't you glad? So. Now, when we go to church, there's no blood, which is wonderful because the blood of Jesus satisfies for all time. And so I've talked about it before, and so is Shane Willard, and it's worth talking about again. It's the arc of Scripture. So Scripture is constantly going on a journey, and that arc continues, even though the Bible was finished being written in the first century, and then it was compiled and finalized around the third century, and, and I'll, I'll, do a, I'll do a night sometime in the future on, on how the Bible came to be. But from about the third century onwards, it's a sealed document. But the, but the arc of Scripture continues. And I'm going to demonstrate that uh, for you now uh, using the example of slavery. 
Shane Miller and I talked about this a, a few weeks ago uh, with eunuchs. And so we go in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, it banned eunuchs, said eunuchs not allowed in the presence of God. But then in Isaiah, there's a promise that they would be welcomed. And then we get into the book of Acts chapter 8, and we find that not only are eunuchs welcomed, but they are pursued to be brought into the church. Well, so they've gone from excluded to pursued, and that's because of the arc of Scripture, and we're still living in that arc. We've watched it over the centuries, and, and humanity is still growing and developing. So let's have a look at slavery as, a, as an example, just really, really quickly. Slavery was commonplace in the ancient world, and in the light of this, the Bible gives some generally excellent and fair laws on the proper treatment of slaves. This was revolutionary for its time, be, uh, being the first occasion when rights for slaves and also rights for women and children were actually written down. That's what we find in the book of Leviticus, for example. Uh, we look at Leviticus from a 2021 20, perspective and we go, we kind of shake our head and go, what were they thinking? But 3,000 years ago, this was advanced and revolutionary, and that's what we need to understand uh, about the Bible. Uh, the purpose was to bring justice and order into a culture that before this had been lawless. But other verses appear to be problematic when it comes to slavery. I'm going to read a couple to you here. Exodus chapter 21 and verses 20 and 21. Listen to this. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. So if you beat your slave and kill them, well, you have to be punished for that. But, you know, if you just kind of knock them out and wound them so they can't walk for two days, but after that they recover, then that's all right. Hey, they belong to you. Don't worry about it. That is in the Bible. Uh, so, you know, I mean, are we to take that literally for today? I think not. Let's have a look at another doozy, Leviticus 25, verses 44 to 46. It says, you may purchase male and female slaves from among the nations around you. Oh, I mean, I mean, the Bible clearly says. So, you know, I, I want to know, why can't I own people from New Zealand? It's next door. You know, I should be able to buy people from, well, really, I mean, you know, technically South Africa is next to Australia as well, and so is Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. My goodness. Uh, you may also purchase the children of temporary residents. You may treat them as your property passing them on to your children as a permanent inheritance. You may treat them as slaves, but you must never treat your fellow Israelites this way. Ah, treat Israelites well, but the other people, well, you can own them and treat them like slaves. So both of those verses are in the Bible. And in time past, I would read that and kind of pretend it wasn't there and just go, oh, well, and keep going. But part of my deconstruction and reconstruction process has actually been going, okay, those verses are in the Bible, and that's a problem. Why are they there? How can I reckon this and, and put all of this into context? And when we understand that Scripture has an arc and it is progressing, then it all falls into place and it, and it makes sense to us. But if the Bible's a static book, and every part of it applies today and should be taken literally, then we're all in deep doo-doo. Uh, if it is a book that progresses, then we can equate such verses as I've quoted and many others 
to how ancient people viewed life. They were nomadic tribes who were often at war with each other. And so to them, God was a warrior who would give them victory over their enemies and endorsed their taking captured enemies as slaves. They saw God through the culture of their day. God met them where they were at, but then he took them on a journey of greater discovery and understanding. And that's what we read in the Bible. But God is not a warrior who gives warring tribes victories over their enemies and endorses their taking captured enemies as slaves. When Jesus came, he gave us the proper understanding of what God is really like. God is a saviour that saves and does not kill or destroy. He said, I have come to give life and that to the full, that more abundantly. But of course, even in the New Testament, it's interesting when it comes to slavery. And the reason being is that in the Roman Empire of the first century, there were between 70 and 100 million people, and about 50% of these were slaves. So anywhere from 35 to 50 million slaves, the economy of the entire Roman Empire was dependent on slavery. Slaves in Rome had no legal rights. They were the personal property of their masters. Some wealthy Romans owned as many as 20,000 slaves. The master was in complete control of the slaves he owned. Slaves had no right to do as they pleased. They existed to please their master. So while the New Testament doesn't explicitly endorse slavery, it does speak into the culture and gives wisdom because of slavery's existence and its fundamental importance to both the economy and the community's social fabric. And so it would have been impossible to pull that apart in the first century. So God meets society where it was at in the first century and then gives them scripture that is appropriate to their day. So in the epistles, we find repeated instructions to Christian slaves and to slave owners. And so let's let's uh, have a look at a couple of verses. Let's have a look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, first of all. And it says, You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. You still have to do what they tell you. It doesn't sound really nice, does it? But that was the case. Even Jesus used slavery as an example in some of his parables, something graphically illustrated in the movie 12 Years a Slave. Have you ever seen that? I saw it. I think I've seen it twice. And uh, it's, it's pretty brutal, but it gives an amazing insight into what the African-American slave trade and slavery would have been like. In one of the scenes, Tanner, the slave owner, reads the Bible to his slaves, using it to impress upon them obedience to the slave owner. And so he actually reads the scripture before he flays uh, uh, one of his slaves with a whip. Um, so these are the verses that he reads. These are the words of Jesus. Um, and that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared, prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes words of Jesus. What follows is a brutal scene as Tanner lays the whip repeatedly into one of his slaves' flesh, all of which is justified by Scripture. Again, if the Bible is a static book, 
then uh, if then we have serious considerations. Now, remember, this was a parable. Parable is a story to teach us a truth. Not every detail in a parable is necessarily correct, and not every detail of a parable is is meant to be taken literally. So Jesus was just taking an example from the culture of his day um, to to prove a point from that particular parable. So this is something I want you to consider just before we finish up uh, this example of, of slavery. But if the abolitionist William Wilberforce were alive in the first century, it would have been impossible for him to have abolished slavery. Let that sink in. But 1800 years later, he could succeed despite opposition from slave owners, business owners, and churches and church leaders. The 1800s saw the rise of many men and women who began to realize that slavery was wrong. Those who were against them were able to find plenty of Bible verses to say why slavery was acceptable. And I'm sure they used that often used statement, the Bible clearly says. But the overarching themes in scripture, such as the golden rule, won the day. And I'm so glad they did. Treat others as you want to be treated them, as you want to be treated. And the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, are central ideas in the Bible. And so in 1807, King George III signed the law, signed into law the Act for the Abolition of the Slave Trade, banning trading and enslaved people in the British Empire. In the US, the ratification of the 13th Amendment happened at the end of the US Civil War, uh, the American Civil War, I should say, December 6th, uh, 1865. Civil War finished in April of that year, and the 13th Amendment led to abolishing slavery in that country as well. Remembering, of course, the American Civil War, which was fought from 1861 to 1865, for, for that war, slavery was one of the key issues why people were fighting each other. And remember, you know, when you hear people say about the Black Lives Matters, Matter uh, protests, say, well, why are they protesting? Just remember that white people in the American Civil War fought each other for four years over their right or lack of right to own black people. Very important thing that we remember, how quickly we forget. Today, once again, it is Christian organizations at the forefront of working against the illicit slave trade. Why Christians? Because we are motivated by a God who, through the teachings of the Bible, has made it clear that his ultimate purpose is for all people's freedom. Slavery is just one instance of the Bible's progressive revelation. I could have chosen any number of other things, women's rights, interracial marriage, I touched on blood sacrifices, war, capital punishment, gender diversity, or any one of a dozen other examples to demonstrate that the Bible is not a static book. I hope this helps you uh, in your reading and your study uh, of Scripture. The Bible is an incredible book that is living and active. And I love that verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says the Bible is living and active and sharp. In other words, it's not a static book. It's alive. Um, I heard of a great evangelist in the UK. I forget his name, but this was, I think, in the 1900s uh, or the 18th century. 
and he would he would stand in Trafalgar Square and he'd put his Bible down on the pavement and then he'd put his hat over his Bible and he'd stand back and he'd and he'd point at his hat and he would go, It's alive, it's alive. And and he kept on doing that until a crowd had gathered and everyone was wondering what was under his hat that was alive. And when he was happy with the night size of the crowd, he'd take his hat off the Bible and pick it up and he'd go, It's alive. It's the living word of God, and he'd preach the gospel and bring people to Jesus. Ah, things that you could do a couple of hundred years ago. Of course, we can do that today on the internet, which is wonderful. And so people will misread the Bible by considering the Bible as a static document where every verse and every chapter is equal. Uh, The Bible is not all literal. It doesn't all apply to today. Uh, everything in the Bible is worthy of, of teaching and can teach and instruct us. And on some things, it teaches us how lucky we are to live in 2021 uh, because of the way things have changed over the centuries. The Bible doesn't have to behave as a static book. And if you try and make it, the Bible simply doesn't behave itself. And I love that uh, about Scripture. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. And so let's get back uh, to one of the questions from before. Are we overcomplicating it by not taking it literally and simply believing that God can do anything? And I'd like to say here, I don't believe that God can do anything. Now, before you stone me as a heretic, okay, um, God can't do anything. For example, God cannot do something that goes against his nature, as God. So the Bible says that God cannot lie uh, because God is truth. So he can't lie. So there are certain things that God cannot do, and it's important that we understand that. Um, so with the Bible, when it's when it's literal, take it literally. So as I said before, ask yourself, what kind of language am I reading here? When Jesus says, love your enemies, take it literally. When he, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, Take it literally. When he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, take it literally. But if it's poetic license, what you've got to look for there is truth as meaning. So it's not literal. The book of Revelation, for example, is Hebrew apocalyptic literature. It was a very popular genre of writing before Jesus for about maybe 200 years and probably 100 or 200 years after Jesus. Very, very popular. In the day, it was never meant to be taken literally. The closest thing we would have to it today would be things like uh, the Lord of the Rings, Narnia Chronicles, maybe more contemporary, Harry Potter. We know that those things are not meant to be taken literally, but They're ripping stories that have incredible meaning. And so we ask ourselves as we're reading that, wow, what's the meaning here? And more importantly, how do I put this truth uh, into my life? And and 
I'll finish here with a couple of things. First of all, there are parts of the Bible that are complicated, and the Bible even admits this. So 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, Peter is writing this, and he says about Paul, the apostle, he writes the same the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So here's poor old Peter, the fisherman, and and maybe he was a simple soul. I don't know. And uh, I mean, he was a fisherman, so he might n- never have learned to read and write. It's likely that Peter would have had a scribe to write down his letters. Um, and so he's reading Paul's letters and he's going, man, this guy's really intelligent, but some of the stuff he writes is very hard to understand. And so there are things in the Bible that are difficult to understand and we need to study, we need to discuss, we need to wrestle with those things. People have been doing that for hundreds of years and uh, we need to continue to do that and enjoy the journey of discussing and studying and wrestling with Scripture. Before I finish this section, I want to just give you a couple of things for simplicity because Yes, some of the things in the Bible are complex, but also there's some beautiful simplicity. Um, A couple of our girls, Paris and Gigi, gave their lives to Jesus when they were four years old. So uh, Gigi um, prayed a prayer with us uh, and then when she was four, and then three years later when Paris was four, Gigi led Paris to the Lord. I think they were sitting on the bed and Gigi led Paris in a prayer, which is just beautiful. And uh, and that's the way they began their faith. So the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand and to embrace because there's one word of God and that word is Jesus. And so, as I said before, the, Jesus is the word made flesh. He fleshes out the Bible for us. And so to ultimately to understand the Bible, we have to look at Jesus Christ. And how did Jesus live? How did he speak? How did he express himself? Uh, what did he say about God? Was God a warrior or uh, was God a loving father? Uh, what was the expression? How did Jesus live? And and so in understanding the Tanakh fully as well, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, I think it's important for us to have two lenses. Well, lens number one will be Jesus and lens number two will be the New Testament. When we have both of our lenses in place, we can understand really, really clearly. Karl Barth uh, was an amazing German theologian. He was alive during Hitler's Germany in the 30s. He wrote millions of words on theology. He wrote an entire commentary on the book of Romans, uh, an amazing man. And in 1962, he went to America for one his one and only visit to America. And while he was there speaking to some university students, one of the students asked him if he could summarize in one sentence the essence of the millions of words that he had published on theology. And in his broken English with his thick German accent, he said these words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? That simplicity. So, you know, enjoy the discussions and the wrestling with scripture and the reading of different views and all of that, but never, never lose sight of that beautiful simplicity your relationship with Jesus. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And if someone like Karl Barth 
who had entrenched his life in theology and pastored people and led a great church in Germany and spoken truth to power uh, through the Second World War to Hitler, uh, where many other Christians capitulated to Hitler. Karl Barth did not, um, and, and there were a, a few others um, who didn't as well, uh, but an absolutely amazing guy. And so through all of his complexity, he kept it simple. And we need to do the same. Let's keep it simple. It's Jesus. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But the question that I'll summarize here is, can our cultural context influence how we interpret Scripture? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, it can. Um, our culture definitely influences how we interpret Scripture, other than what I would refer to as the non-negotiable truths of the Bible, which remain the same despite culture. And so that's the truth that is expressed in the great creeds of the church. So the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, that talk about who God is, the fact that there is a God, who he is, that he's eternal, that he is represented as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three personalities that make up one God, that um, Jesus was God in human form, who was born into the human family in a point of time, who grew, who lived, who ministered, loved, died, rose again uh, to destroy sin and Satan and death and to end blood sacrifice once and for all, and whoever lives to intercede for God's people now so that he can save us completely. Those are the non-negotiables. They, they are the things that are the same in every culture. And I'll add to those things the the truths that we've talked about previously, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. Love your enemies. Treat others as you would have them treat you. They are eternal, unchangeable truths that are the same in whatever culture you are in. So if I'm living in Australia, those things are true. If, I'm, if I was living in a Muslim land, those things would be true. If I'm living in America, those things are true. Wherever I am, those truths are immutable, unchanging. But there are other examples in Scripture of truth that does change. We talked about that, really, for the best part of an hour. I'll give you a couple of examples here. One of them is in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. And uh, Paul is here addressing head coverings and hair length. And let's have a look at a couple of verses. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14. Paul says here, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Well, he's written that in, in probably the 50s AD, the first century, okay? Uh, probably what? I don't know, 20, 25 years after Jesus died and rose again. And he's saying, doesn't the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? Well, I'm reading this in 2021, and I go, no, no, the very nature of things does not teach me that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. In, in, in the culture that I live in, it's fine for a man to have long hair. Look at verse 15, 1 Corinthians 11. If a woman has long hair, it's her glory. 
for long hair is given to her as a covering. In, in the same verses, he talks about a woman who has short hair being a shame to her, and he's saying the very nature, the very culture of life teaches us about these things. Well, he's talking to the Corinthians, and, uh, and, and so in Corinth, that their, their religious life was based on temple prostitution, and the male prostitutes in the temple identified themselves by having long hair. The female prostitutes identified themselves as by having short hair or shaved heads. And so for Christians in Corinth, if a man had long hair, man, you're identifying with a temple prostitute. A woman had short hair or a shaved head, you're identifying with a temple prostitute. In Western society today, hair length is not an issue. In some Arabic and Muslim countries today, head coverings are still a thing, and that's fine in their culture. It's, it's acceptable for them in their culture. It, when, when people like that come to Australia and we have beautiful Arabic people who live in Australia and you will often see them with head coverings on the, uh, or sometime a full burqa, not so much in Australia or, you know, but, but more the hijab that they wear uh, over their head. And, and, and that's a cultural thing and for them it's fine. That doesn't mean that women in the church have to wear one. It's all right if they want to do that. In some countries, um, women teaching men or women teaching a mixed gathering of men and women is forbidden. In some places, a woman can teach, but she has to be hidden behind a curtain so that the men can't see her while she's teaching. In Australia, we still have churches that won't ordain women, won't have women preach, and that actually is working against the gospel in Australia. And so, yes, some truth changes uh, with the culture um, where we are living. And so I hope that kind of answers that question. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Digging Deeper is a weekly podcast that is uploaded every Wednesday. If you have a question or topic that you'd like Rob to speak into, get in touch with us via Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. Next week... Pastor Rob will investigate how and when Christian fundamentalism began. We hope you can join us then. 